Welcome to the Breathlessness Podcast, presenting Dyspnea 2021 with Dr. Sarah Booth. The Breathlessness Podcast is sponsored by the Dyspnea Society. Visit their website at dyspneasociety.com to become a member. We're delighted to have um, Professor Dennis Jensen and Dr. Hayley Lathwaite with us this morning. They're both going to start by talking a little bit about their professional backgrounds and the sort of work they do. Would you like to start, Dennis? Yeah, so I'm Dennis Jensen, and I'm a clinical exercise and respiratory physiologist at McGill University in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. I completed my training at Queen's University under the supervision of Dennis O'Donnell in clinical exercise pathophysiology. And my research program at McGill is largely centered around understanding the mechanisms, measurement, and management of breathlessness in healthy adults, as well as people with uh, chronic pulmonary disease, whether or not it's uh, obstructive or restrictive. Uh, my name is Hayley Lukewaite, so I'm currently a postdoctoral research fellow at McGill University, supervised by Dennis Jensen. My background is a clinical exercise physiologist, and my interest in research as well is in breathlessness for chronic lung diseases, particularly chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and so the role of exercise in the management of COPD and breathlessness, and also um, improving the assessment of exertional breathlessness in chronic lung disease. Great. Thank you. So I'm going to start with some questions, and obviously we can work uh, move around them. But what I think would be useful, because a lot of people find the actual physiology of breathlessness difficult to understand. So first, could you talk a little bit about when someone is in health, and exercising, for example, a good runner, what is actually making them feel breathless? And please, both of you contribute uh, in, in, uh, as you wish. So when healthy people exercise, they often use descriptors for their breathing that are like the work effort of breathing and increased work effort of breathing. And this reflects like the increase in work and effort of the respiratory muscles um, that's required to increase ventilation to meet the metabolic demands of exercise. So even at the peak of exercise, healthy people use descriptors around increased work and effort of breathing. And so this is reflecting um, the labor that it takes, I guess, to increase or maintain a high level of ventilation. But in health, it's not the ventilatory system that's limiting um, exercise. It's the cardiovascular system and our ability to deliver um, extract oxygen. So even at the peak, there's a reserve to the ventilation. And so then the breathlessness is more about that effort rather than being an actual restriction or limitation of the ventilation. And when that happens, say in cardiorespiratory disease or particularly in COPD, they reach that ventilatory limitation and then the breathlessness is more about not being able to get enough air in or not being able to increase that ventilation. Right, so in... Um cardiopulmonary disease, there are limitations on breathlessness, whereas in health, it's the cardiovascular system that's the limiting factor. Have I, have I got that right? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. So in a normal, non-athlete, healthy person, they even at the peak of exercise, they would still have that ventilatory reserve. And so then, yeah, the breathlessness is just reflecting the effort of the respiratory muscles to maintain ventilation rather than that um, feeling of being limited and not being able to expand or increase their ventilation. 
I think also what's important, particularly in the context of exercise as a therapy, is that we ventilate, we breathe to exchange gas. So deliver oxygen um, to the muscles and to expel carbon dioxide that the muscles produce when they generate energy. And so the muscles are really the sources of the burden or the demand that's placed on the respiratory system. And for that reason, they become a very particular or important source of treatment. If you have deconditioned muscle that has to consume a lot of oxygen or produces a lot of carbon dioxide and a lot of byproducts, stress-related byproducts, that puts a bigger burden on the respiratory system. And so the opposite of that then is that if you can train those muscles and you can make them more fit, if they can have more blood vessels, if they can have more mitochondria, more enzymes that are able to efficiently uh, utilize oxygen and prevent the onset of something that people often call lactic acidosis or metabolic acidosis is that you can really delay the, the rate of increase in ventilation. And that is a very effective way of trying to alleviate breathlessness, but it's not always a, a very easy prescription, but really the ventilatory demands originate at the site of the muscle and they can be compounded by abnormalities in, in lung function and structure. So things like emphysema. But I think it's important for this, the topic of this particular conversation that the muscle is really the, the originating site during exercise of the demand that's put on the respiratory system. And as Haley mentioned, in healthy adults, the respiratory system fulfills its, its, its requirements to exchange gas beautifully. It does it with very little energy and effort, and it really you know, causes relatively modest levels of breathlessness. And that breathlessness is expected and, and really kind of what we believe based on the research that we've done and others have done is that it reflects that the brain or the central nervous system's input into the breathing muscles, as Haley mentioned. And so when, you, when the muscles demand the brain to activate the muscles more, you perceive more. But in healthy adults, that's not always unpleasant or fearful or cause anxiety. It's often you know, euphoric and, and is an expected experience, which of course, in people with lung disease, it can be very unexpected and very anxiety provoking and fearful. And some people don't know if they're going to, you know, capture another breath. So there are very different health and disease related issues in terms of breathlessness. But I think it's important to realize that the muscle is the site of, of really what drives breathing and ultimately, therefore, the symptom of breathlessness, whether you're healthy or not. Yeah, and I think that's interesting to know that the great degree of leeway that the respiratory system has in health then, and, and that's a useful thing for people to understand. And as you said, I mean, runners, great runners often feel even severe breathlessness is quite exhilarating, but people with illness experience terrific fear and anxiety. What's your explanation for this terror or this fear that people can feel when they're breathless with advanced disease. I, I was just going to say that, like Dennis was already saying, that it's about your past experiences and your expectations of what that breathlessness means. So mm. for people who do have cardiorespiratory disease and they do reach that point where they're physically limited by their ventilatory system, then they don't know if they can increase their ventilation to get the oxygen that they need or that meet their ventilatory requirements. So they're actually reaching that physical limitation and then 
that combined with the past experiences where they might have had really negative experiences yeah, around their breathlessness and then that's further inducing anxiety and making exacerbating the condition even further. And further, from a physiological perspective, it's, it's a relatively difficult symptom to study because there's a lot of different things that we can't measure very well. And breathlessness research doesn't lend itself particularly well to animal research. So what we would call yeah. reduction studies. I've never met, like my dog, for example, has never reported to me his level of breathlessness on the org scale, even if he's breathing heavy after a run. So, you know, we can't expect to gain a lot of information about the underlying mechanisms of health and disease from animal models. But in light of that difficulty, there are, you know, to, to study breathlessness and the mechanisms, we do know that in people with lung disease, as well as in heart disease, really breathlessness from a physiological perspective can often be um, broken down into having a high demand to breathe. So whether or not that's originating in the muscles or damaged lungs to really increase ventilatory requirements to a very high level. But the paradox in people with an obstructive or restrictive lung disease, or even on a heart disease, for example, or neuromuscular disorders, is that despite the very high requirement to ventilate, particularly during low levels of physical activity or exercise, they have very little room to breathe. And so there's this mismatch between what the brain wants the respiratory system to do and what the respiratory system is physically capable of doing. And there's some belief that that mismatch can be perceived in sensory areas of the brain. So those areas are very similar to areas that are activated when pain is, is invoked in somebody. So these are the limbic and paralimbic structures like the amygdala and the insula. And so when you mismatch what the brain wants and what the respiratory system is capable of, of achieving, those areas of the brain seem to light up in that fight or flight kind of response. And it's potentially that mismatch between the want to breathe and the ability to breathe that ultimately can provoke that, that sense of fear or terror and make people stop exercising prematurely and in many cases avoid it. As Haley said, they, you know, they can have these very negative dyspnea perceptions or breathlessness perceptions in terms of climbing a flight of stairs or walking up a hill. And they avoid those activities altogether, even though those activities are very important to maintain because they're a means by which to actually help alleviate breathlessness as, as a treatment. So physiologically, we believe that it's really a mismatch between what the brain wants the respiratory system to do and what the respiratory system is physically capable of doing. And you've highlighted earlier, Dennis, but it's so important I want to mention it again, that it's a different, you know, exercise is the cause of breathlessness in people with advanced cardiorespiratory disease, but it's also that getting people to exercise enough to be induced breathlessness is also a treatment. And you said that it's a hard treatment to get over to people who've got these fears or had, had these awful experiences. But how... Is it that it's both the cause and the treatment for shortness of breath? Well, I mean, I, Haley can certainly jump in here as well because she's doing research on this exact topic. But again, I was once told that the best treatment for the best way to manage breathlessness is to stay in bed. That results in a vicious cycle yeah. where the more deconditioned you are and your cardiovascular system and your muscles become deconditioned, 
the more that that next flight of steps that you have to walk up or the hill that you have to walk up puts a burden on the muscles. And as I mentioned before, when those muscles are not conditioned and when they're not strong and they don't have, you know, well-functioning mitochondria and oxygen delivery support mechanisms is that the muscles demand a lot of the lungs. And so while exercise is the cause of an increase in ventilation and therefore breathlessness, the irony is that it's also exercise that can train the muscles to help unburden the lungs and the respiratory system as a treatment. And now, so, I mean, I think that's very well established in the literature that, that supervised or rehabilitative exercise training is amongst the most effective therapeutic interventions to manage breathlessness, but the psychology of exercise mm-hmm. and overcoming the burden of breathlessness and the fear of breathlessness is very challenging. And, and you know, that's, that's obviously um, where I think multidimensional or multidisciplinary um, teams are important, where you understand the physiology and the psychology of a particular symptom in this case. Yeah. I think that's important to mention that even though studies show that people might not have a physiological adaptation or improvement from the exercise training, that, that doesn't mean that exercise training can't help to improve breathlessness. As like Dennis said, that the exercise can be like the exposure therapy. So people often don't know how much they actually can do because they've had a long history of avoiding activities due to their breathlessness or fear of their breathlessness. So when we get them exercising and into exercise training, often they people realize that they can do a lot more than they expected, even in the setting of having breathlessness. And then so they, they learn or readjust their expectations about how breathless exercise makes them. And then that helps them to be more active and to do greater intensity of exercise over time. It's an interesting point that Haley made there. Some years ago, a study by Karen Waddell, when she was a postdoctoral fellow with Dennis O'Donnell on the Queen's University, had done a, a pretty detailed physiology study trying to understand what was happening to the respiratory system, to the, you know, the physiological response to exercise that could maybe explain the benefits of an outpatient pulmonary rehabilitation program on the symptom of breathlessness. It was a relatively large study for the detailed physiology that they did. And what was interesting is that on average, the participants with with severe symptomatic COPD in that study really didn't demonstrate on average any improvement in their physiology in response to, I believe it was an eight-week outpatient rehab program. But all of the the, the measures of breathlessness, so the burden of breathlessness, the anxiety and fear of breathlessness, what we call the effective dimensions of breathlessness when assessed on standard questionnaires, all improved. And so to Haley's point, you know, it's, it, there's a, and, and Kyle Pattinson has talked about this as well from Oxford, is that you can kind of reprogram your expectations about breathlessness through exposure. And it doesn't always come down to the physiology. It can come down to being more familiar with the symptom, being able to manage the symptom, realizing that the symptom is not going to cause imminent harm. And so even just, you know, the exposure and being in an environment where you experience it and then you realize how to manage it 
is very important. But exercise, again, as Haley mentioned, could be a great exposure therapy, even in the absence of physiological adaptations. But I don't think that that minimizes the importance of physiological adaptations. In my mind, I think it just highlights that we're not always prescribing exercise or delivering the exercise training in a way that optimizes the physiological benefits. And the irony is that that might actually be because people are so symptomatic and they can't exercise long enough and hard enough to achieve the benefits. So to kind of bridge off Haley's point, I think that exercise, even in the absence of physiological improvements in gas exchange or ventilation or muscle function, is a very powerful intervention for the alleviation of breathlessness and improving quality of life. But that doesn't mean that it can't be optimized and made even better if we could pair that kind of behavioral or component of exercise with fundamental improvements in the underlying physiology, which don't always occur in, in rehabilitative training programs. And again, why that happens, I don't know. But I think there's definitely a lot of room for optimization of exercise training to get both the exposure benefit, but also the physiological benefit. Could you talk, both talk a little bit about your work? Because you, your supervisor, because supervised exercise training might be thought of as pulmonary rehab, which is quite a group thing. But actually, you do quite a lot of individual work with people in labs with quite a lot of much more detailed measurement of what's going on. Is, is, what do you think the advantages of that are? Yeah, so the one exercise training um, study that I was doing prior to COVID was supervised exercise training and individualized exercise training with low dose immediate opioids as an adjunct therapy to that. So you're right in that the exercise training was individualized. So it was prescribed at intensity based on the participants' cardiopulmonary exercise test peak power output. And so it was 60% of their maximum power output that they could achieve on that test. And then the sessions are individualized for that person and three times a week for five weeks. So not a very long program, but the one-on-one nature of the program allowed us to titrate the exercise based on their self-reported breathlessness. So the exercise is continually being progressed based on how the person reports their breathlessness on the zero to 10 Borg scale. And so I think that allows us to push, I guess, the participant to the tolerable limits of their breathlessness while they're exercising. And that might not only from a moderate to severe level of breathlessness on the Borg scale, but ensures that they're always working in that limit. And then, yeah, we've found that by doing that, then they actually have quite large physiological improvements in a short period of time compared to what might be achieved in a group program where it's not so one-on-one and individualized for the person, depending on the program. Do you think the, the data you're able to feed back to them is helpful? I wondered, you know, the figures that you're able to demonstrate they're improving physiologically. I think what's from my experience with the participants, the the data that they're really interested in is their progress, I guess. So they know that each session they're coming in and they're working in that same range or intensity of breathlessness. But to do that, they can see that each session that they have to increase the intensity of their exercise. So say they're on the bike, you're increasing the watts on the bike and they have that visual feedback. So they don't really find out until the end when they do the repeat cardiopulmonary exercise test 
how much further they went or how much better they felt when they were doing that test. But I'm, of course, that immediate feedback on how much more they can do in the same level of breathlessness, I think is really encouraging for them. And they do have huge improvements from going from 20 to 40 minutes of continuous exercise and then also increasing the intensity of that exercise from the 40 minutes in just five weeks. And how do you translate that into an exercise program for them to continue at the end? I think that is a really tricky part and that's there's a lot of barriers to that and there's it's really difficult because they're coming into a clinical setting where we have the equipment and they have an exercise professional there who's pushing them and making them encourage them to reach a goal and then when they're translating to the home setting it's it's not the same. So they're not going to have the same equipment and they're not going to have the same level of supervision. So I think that is a really tricky um, area. But in my um, opinion, I think it needs to have really explicit conversations with the person about um, what activities they do want to do more of in their day-to-day life or what activities do they struggle with and want to be able to do better in the setting of their breathlessness and then trying to focus your goal setting and around those activities and talking with them I guess about how if they do more exercise how their exercise can help them with those day-to-day physical activities that are important to them but I think that is a really tricky um, area about crossing the bridge between being very individualized and supervised and in a clinical setting and then the person going back to their day-to-day life. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's the maintenance aspect of exercise is, is very challenging. And I think, you know, have to maybe build on some of the, you know, the, the, the sports psychology and exercise and health psychology literature where they establish things like peer mentorship programs and people are held, you know, accountable to each other. I know anecdotally that when participants that are enrolled in an outpatient rehab program in some cases, some of them have kind of aligned together and created a small exercise group alliance. I remember years ago that one group of, of patients that participated in an exercise training study at Queen's University when I was there had actually uh, spoken to the local YMCA, so basically the local gym, and had asked for a group exercise room so that members of the, the kind of COPD exercise group could continue to get together a couple of times a week and exercise. And that was a practice that they maintained with the support of the YMCA for, you know, for a long period of time afterwards. And they maintained not only their exercise, but the personal relationships. They were accountable to each other. They obviously knew the experiences that they were facing and feeling the, the, you know, the barriers um, to physical activity and exercise, but also the benefits. And so they kind of created an opportunity for themselves for sustained exercise outside of the program and the study that they participated in. And that's not always available to many people. They have to be really self-motivated. And I think there's definitely a role of carers, family caregivers, you know, to, to engage in exercise. And, and some of our participants in studies in the past the ones that are most active are the ones that have really supportive spouses, whether husbands or wives, you know, that, that really, okay, let's get out, let's walk around the block, let's go do a hike, let's, you know, engage in those activities. And then so I think there's obviously a whole social dynamic, a peer dynamic, and a carer dynamic that can help facilitate exercise maintenance after the fact. But it's a very complicated kind of psychological and 
and socioeconomic. Yeah. That, that, well, that's, look, it's the, it's the same for anyone. It doesn't matter if you're healthy or you have disease. Everyone finds physical activity and maintaining or increasing that level of physical activity difficult. So it's no different for someone who has chronic respiratory disease or cardiorespiratory disease, but they're also facing the barrier of having a high breathlessness burden and then expecting them to be physically active with that breathlessness. So I think it's important to have those conversations about how exercise can help to manage their breathlessness. Like we were saying before, that even though exercise is a cause of their breathlessness, it can also help to manage it. So I think it would help to put it in the context of the benefits for their breathlessness and then also, of course, supporting them to manage their breathlessness while they are being active. There are many people who become deconditioned through illness or through accidents. In an ideal world, which I know we don't live in, but what would you like to see as rehab for, because I noticed, Dennis, you've been doing work with people with chronic kidney disease as well. And, you know, there are loads of people coming out of ITU or out of any illnesses, MS. How would you, what would you like to see a combination of individualized lab-based, giving people biofeedback data plus group continuance to, to keep people exercising into the long term? How, what would your ideal model be? That's a good question. I think firstly, it depends on the person, doesn't it? Like everyone responds differently to different things. Yeah, I think I, I don't, I think the model really needs to be personalized and considers many contextual factors where somebody, how far somebody needs to travel, what, you know, what access they have to, you know, financial resources, exercise equipment and resources, various things. What are, as Haley said, what are their ultimate goals? You know, like many people don't want to become an elite athlete. They want to be able to go about their household chores or play mm-hmm. with their. Uh, so I think, I think the model needs to be, and I mean, it's kind of been an emerging theme on, on multiple of, of these breathlessness podcasts is that breathlessness is a very individualized experience. Um, shaped by by prior experiences, and and so I think that the intervention can't necessarily be blanket therapy. I think exercise is certainly a component, but I think it needs to be considered in the context of what the participant or the person is able to achieve, what's realistic for them, and what are their goals. It's unfortunately, it's not like an antihypertensive medication where we say you know, take this at this dose and it's going to, you know, hopefully treat your condition. I mean, exercise is much more complex than that and and needs to be maintained. And so, for example, if you have somebody that is, you know, cachectic or has severe muscle wasting, is in high risk of, you know, falls or imbalances and is suffering in many ways from, from very low muscle mass or muscle strength, you know, you might have to optimize the, the strength training component with a nutritional intervention as an example to try to optimize that before you, you know, you start to build up the cardiovascular system a little bit more. So I don't really have a great answer for you because I think it is so individualized and needs to be tailored to, you know, the treatment goals of each, of each individual. That's Yeah. Why. I think, yeah, I think individualized is, is key and People range from wanting to do, like Dennis said, just being able to do more in their day-to-day life. So whether that's being able to go out for social activities or go out and play you know, a social game um, or sport with their friends, all the way to people who want 
who are into the coming into the center and doing high intensity um, exercise training regularly. So I think it's important to consider that exercise doesn't have to be the latter version where you are coming into the center and doing supervised high intensity exercise, but it can also be about walking the dog or doing more of your DIY in the house or doing more household chores or there's such a variety of activities that classify as exercise and it just really depends on the individual person and their goals in their life. And I guess if we're thinking about it as a treatment where you would, if you were using an antihypertensive, aim for a certain, because you'd say for your health, your systolic blood pressure needs to be within these parameters. And in a way, if we're saying we know that a lot of people have setbacks after accidents, they never regain, or, or illness of any of many types, they never regain where they were. And we, we've, we know that in cancer, we can reduce the chance of recurrence by exercise. So actually trying to get people to see exercise, and this requires, as you've talked about, carers and societal changes, because it's actually quite difficult sometimes to get exercise just from doing your everyday activities. That needs, seems to me to need to become more of a discussion because um, it's not appreciated how exercise has a better effect size than many drugs in many instances. I don't know what your comments are on that. Yeah, I, it's, I mean, it's, it's, you raise a good point. Even in the hypertension literature, for example, there is a large meta-analysis and systematic review that was done a couple of years ago that demonstrated whether or not it was aerobic conditioning or strength conditioning is that exercise training had a bigger positive effect as an antihypertensive intervention than any of the antihypertensive medications. And so, but it, it's, it, also, it also follows the kind of, if you don't use it, you lose it. It's not enough to do you know, an eight week exercise training program and then think that it's you know, your, your physical activity and fitness is, is cured. It's just like if you, you know, if you take a bronchodilator and your lung function improves, as soon as you stop that bronchodilator, you know, you still have lung dysfunction that, that reverses back. So exercise, like any intervention, needs to be maintained and active and sustained to, to maintain the benefits. If you're not getting the treatment, you're not getting the benefit. So it's, it, yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely a complicated kind of intervention, but it is, it is so important to the management of, of these chronic conditions and, and to breathlessness. And we do know that it does have a major effect, as you said, on not only breathlessness, but quality of life, self-efficacy and control and, and sense of control over many of, of the disease. So it's, it's really a very holistic intervention that benefits people in many, many ways. It's just not always people, I, I think clinicians, many clinicians don't necessarily have the expertise to prescribe exercise, to titrate it, to individualize it. Oftentimes it's kind of, you should be active. Well, what does that mean? Exactly. Um, that's, a, that's a very different prescription for an individual that has you know, a peak exercise capacity of just say, 40 watts on a bicycle versus somebody that can exercise to 100 watts. Mm. You certainly can't prescribe the same dose of exercise and the same intensity to, you know, those two people. And if, you, it, yeah. Yeah, if you did, it, it, you know, it could lead to... But at the same time, I don't think we should overcomplicate it. So 
being in Australia now, like in an Australian context, the guidelines, which are quite similar internationally, are just for older Australian adults should do the 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous intensity aerobic activity. And so whether that's someone who has COPD or someone who has heart disease, those um, recommendations can still apply and don't have to be overcomplicated for those populations. But of course, like Dennis said, what's moderate intensity to Dennis is going to be a lot different to what's moderate intensity for someone who has COPD. So while the absolute intensity changes, I think it's important to not overcomplicate it and still use those general population recommendations as a guide. Okay, I'd love to go on. I, I, I feel I ought to ask you as a final sort of thing, what would you look out for in the, what do you think are the most exciting things in the exercise and physiology of exercise literature at the moment, either in breathlessness or in another area, if both of you would like to comment? I'll comment on something that might be a bit different to Dennis, but I'm um, excited at looking at the different adjunctive therapies to exercise, so helping people exercise harder and longer in the setting of their breathlessness so whether that's something as simple as the handheld fan or um, something like elemental or something more um, like opioids like we were doing um, at the mcgill lab any of those sort of adjunctive treatments are going to help people to exercise and get greater benefits of exercise um, while they are living with breathlessness thank you yeah i think i i i'll bridge off that i and I definitely support that view because that's, you know, really what we're trying to, to do recently in the lab is optimization of exercise training through the management of breathlessness. But I think also there's some nice work coming out from like Martin Spruitt's group in the Netherlands looking at things like treatable traits. So this idea of personalized medicine. Yeah. And you mentioned before, you know, it, it, I think it's important to understand that exercise limitation and breathlessness is very multifactorial. It can originate in the muscle, it can originate in the lung, it can originate the heart, it can be psychogenic, it can be multifactorial. And so, you know, really trying to understand to the best of somebody's ability, what are the factors that are contributing and trying to optimize the management of all of those different factors in order to allow somebody to achieve the biggest, the greatest benefits of a physical activity program or an exercise training program is ideal. And again, I think that, but I, I think some of the things that we're interested in is that is, is knowing the importance of, of kind of the muscle and the peripheral muscles and, and how they become dysfunctional is really trying to understand the link between the muscle and the lungs. And what are some of the strategies, the combination of strategies that we can do to really improve the, you know, the, the strength and endurance of the muscles as well as their aerobic capacity that would eliminate the biggest burden on the respiratory system and on the heart. And so whether or not that's a combination of resistance training to, you know, make the muscles grow in size and strength and endurance in combination with aerobic exercise, in combination with different dietary interventions, because breathlessness, for example, often prevents people from consuming enough food. And the calories are really what we need to build muscle and to maintain muscle mass. And so if you're too breathless to eat, you know, you need to identify strategies to, to make sure that people get enough carbohydrate and fat and, and particularly protein to try to support the demands of exercise. So I think there's a lot in there about identifying treatable traits in an individualized manner and then targeting those things for the ultimate benefit of, 
of somebody's quality of life, their symptom burden and their, their physical capacity. Thank you very much. I think one of the key messages, correct me if I'm wrong, is getting clinicians to think about the way they present exercise, simply saying to people, just become a bit more active and that's it, and not using other expertise to help them achieve that. A kind of individualized assessment and thinking about the muscle and the mind in your approach to getting people to exercise more. Anyway, thank you both very much indeed. Thanks for listening. Let us know what you thought of the episode and what you would like us to discuss by emailing us at thebreathlessnesspodcast at gmail.com.